0: While our next guest, Dr. Carl Kruselnitsky, OA, is best known for his radio and television work, his curiosity and his ability to communicate about science are both legendary and infectious, he also has degrees in physics and maths, biomedical engineering, medicine and surgery. He has worked as a physicist, tutor, filmmaker, car mechanic, labourer and as a medical doctor at the Children's Hospital in Sydney. The list of his achievements and honours is long. He's the present Julius Sumner Miller Fellow at Sydney University, where his mission is to spread the good word about science and its benefits. He's one of only 100 Apple Masters, an award which celebrates the achievements of people who are changing the world through their passion and vision while inspiring new approaches to creative thinking. He has been awarded, I won't go on forever, I promise you, okay. He has been been awarded an Ig Nobel Prize, a doctorate from the USC, that's our own university here, the Australian, and this is the one that I like best of all, the Australian Skeptic of the Year prize, and and has an asteroid named after him. He's the author of more than 45 books, of which two of the most recent, Dr. Carl's Random Road Trip Through Science and Dr. Carl's Surfing Safari, both include augmented reality, which is to say, if you can get your phone into the right position in front of the book, a hologram of Dr. Carl will suddenly and somewhat alarmingly <laughs> bounce out of the screen, talking to you about what it is you're reading. Last month, he launched what, in my opinion, is the much-needed little book of climate change science. Please welcome Dr. Carl to sit. Here. <laughs> What I didn't say in my introduction is that we have, in fact, known each other for 49 years, that we sort of shared a house and several other things in Paddington in Sydney in the 1972.
1: Drug-crazed hippies.
0: <laughs> that I starred in one of your first films, shot on North Head. And that at some later date, sometime after watching a total eclipse of the sun on the hill at Perico on the south coast of New South Wales, you sold me a 1957 left-hand drive blue-black Buick (laughs) that that I lacked any of the necessary skills to keep on the road. OK, with that out of the way, let me ask you a few questions about your early life, if I may, please. You know, you arrived in Australia when you were three years old, 1950, went to live in Wollongong with your
1: parents. Um, after spending a few years growing up in a refugee camp on the border of New South Wales and Victoria.
0: Oh, OK. Da- da- down where the Hume Dam is now?
1: Uh, around there, Albury-Wodonga.
0: Yeah, OK. Because there were some, some huge refugee camps there, weren't there? Sure,
1: so... Um, it's interesting, actually, uh, getting a, being a, growing up as a refugee because a few years ago I was doing a book tour in Melbourne and we were being driven around by this guy because it was really tightly scheduled. He seemed really happy and I said, how come you're happy? And he was about 50 years old and he said, oh, well, um, I've only been in Australia for about four years but uh, I'm a Kurd, K-U-R-D, and if you don't think about geography, they're these people up around the Middle East who don't have anywhere of their own territory And everybody tries to kill him. And he said, "Um, for every single year of my life, from when I was born, somebody has aimed a gun at me or my family and tried to kill us. And the last four years I've spent my life here in Australia, that's the only time in my life where somebody hasn't tried to kill me. Bloody love it. (laughs) Your parents were true refugees, they had escaped terrible trauma during the war, yeah? Yep. So my father had managed to avoid getting killed by the Russians twice and by the Nazis once, and my mother avoided getting killed by the Nazis, and his way of dealing with it was just to talk about it in, a var- in various ways, whereas my mother's was to lie about it all. Um, and so she lied about her name, her age, where she was born and her religion, which... Um, I can understand, because I was in uh, Afghanistan a few years ago with the Australian Army, and I can understand that for some people who have been through terrible things, the only way they, way they can deal with it is just to pretend it never happened and create a whole new identity with a new name, age, family, religion, everything.
0: Yeah. I, I've spoken to a few people um, uh, I can think of Ramona Cavall and there was a couple of other people we've had for outspoken here who have spoken about this and they've talked people who are not necessarily given to ideas of pseudoscience who have spoken about a kind of inherited trauma from parents who have had very traumatic very really awful experiences like that the, there was almost evidence of some kind of genetic alteration that these experiences could um, promote in, in the body. Do you, have you heard about that, talked about that?
1: You're talking about the field called epigenetics. Okay. So genetics is this, stuff to do with your DNA. It's
0: called a leading question, Carl. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so genetics
1: is <laughs> to do with that DNA ladder of life that runs in our, each of well most of our, well actually the minority of our cells, because um, most of our cells are red blood cells. But um, in all the cells that have got DNA, the DNA looks like a ladder Uh, It's got two side rails and rungs, like your ladder at home, but instead of being a couple of metres long, it is a couple of metres long, but instead of having uh, 12 rungs, it's got about three billion. And experiences don't change the actual rungs of the ladder. By the way, one of the great discoveries of the 20th century was that any three of those rungs on the DNA ladder of life uh, tell certain biological machinery inside the cell to make an amino acid. You put a bunch of amino acids together, you get a protein. Put enough proteins together, you get a human being. So the experiences don't change the DNA, but they change how it's read. So it's as though you've got a blueprint for a building that's got a 1,000 pages and you just sort of glue a couple of pages together so they can't get manufactured. So you miss, miss out on a couple of floors. And the best example is the Dutch Winter Hunger. There's a movie about this called A Bridge Too Far. It's not really about it, but uh, there's a place called Arnhem, as in Arnhem Land, uh, in Holland, and the Allies were trying to get there after they'd successfully reinvaded back onto the continent during the Second World War, and they were trying to get to this bridge, and they couldn't get there, and the Dutch rose up to help them, and they couldn't get there, and the Nazis then oppressed the Dutch massively by killing them and starving them. It was a very severe winter. Women who were pregnant died. Some who didn't die survived but had gave birth to small babies. Now, here's a w- you expect that. That's perfectly normal. It's terrible, but it's normal. What you don't expect is the next bit. When those babies grew up as women, they then had small babies and so on into the third generation. So something that happened to them changed what would happen to the descendants further down the line physically. So that's epigenetics. Mm-hmm. That bit is real but uh, an elephant getting a longer uh, trunk by stretching out for the top leaves, no, that's different. Yeah, okay. So uh, you grew up in Wollongong?
0: In Wollongong, in yep. And um, as a bright young man, you went to university at 16 by the year, age of 19. Everybody went to university then at that age. Oh, rubbish.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was still at school at 16. I um, was well, 17, though. Oh, there was a changeover in the schooling system. They had an extra year, so I was young, so I was two years ahead by accident, no big deal. OK, but, but, okay, but by 19, you were a physicist working for the, uh, for the Port Campbell Steel Mill. Yes, um, uh, a moderately incompetent company and I haven't changed that much. <laughs> <laughs> but after about a year and a half of that, you, you changed. I mean, you went off to Papua New Guinea and then you came back and you became a hippie. A hippie and a filmmaker. Well, part of the problem was that the, um, you know, the story about the Westgate Bridge and how it fell over and all that sort of stuff. I was involved with testing the steel for that and um, BHP made a steel that was too weak and they wouldn't publish my results and so I left and went to New Guinea.
0: Okay, I, that's a story I'd never heard. So, okay. so what you, you, you had actually been st- testing the quality of the steel yeah, they're okay. building the bridge out
1: of. Okay, so they're building the bridge across the Westgate Bridge uh, across the, west, the river, right? Yeah. Um, and they're doing it by a technique called a box girder bridge. Yeah. Now think about a sheet of paper, A4 sheet of paper. What was around is really weak, right? Now, long ways folded in half and half again, right? And then unfold it, and then you got a sort of a box that hold together with sticky tape. That box is really quite strong compared to the original sheet of paper, hence the name box girder bridge. And the way they worked out how big they could build them was by the simple expedient of building one. If it didn't fall over, build another one slightly bigger. They didn't have computer modelling in those days, and so they're building this box girder bridge across the Yarra, and. Um, I was in charge of testing the fatigue life of the steel, okay, diversion time. We'll now talk about fatigue life. So if I get a bit of steel and I pull on it really hard, I can break it if I'm strong enough. Suppose I then pull it at 90% of the stress that breaks it. Uh, It might last two or three cycles, pull, relax, pull, relax. And as I gradually reduce... The stress it lasts longer and longer, ten times, a hundred, a 1, thousand and then suddenly when I get to about 60% of the ultimate tensile strength of the steel, it lasts forever. That's called the fatigue limit. And ideally you want to engineer something that you never expose it to something above its fatigue limit so it will last forever. They didn't on this bridge. I tested the steel for this bridge. It did not reach his fatigue life, uh, fatigue limit. And so I went to the boss and I told him and he said, I wouldn't be unhappy if you went and tested your, just check your numbers to see if you'd made a mistake. I said, yeah, everybody makes mistakes, sure. So I went back and checked it, no mistake. And I said, no, nah, it's fine. He said, I wouldn't be unhappy if you went back and checked your results. And so if you made a mistake, I said, okay, because I was only 20 at this time, what i not know about anything? And so I went back and I I got a mate to test it with me and told him, I said, I I have to take somebody off for a couple of weeks to test it. And he tested it. And I went back and he said a third time, I wouldn't be unhappy if you went back and checked your numbers and found that you'd made a mistake. And what he was telling me was to fake the results. And I was so, uh, things got, things kind of went downhill after that uh, (laughs) because I wouldn't do it. And so I went to uh, New Guinea, I I resigned and went to New Guinea. And while I was there, the bridge fell down for a completely different reason because of inadequate engineering and and how they were doing engineering things. Nothing to do with the fatigue limit. But that bridge is made of inadequate steel. It might be above its fatigue life. It might not be. We don't know. So... You went to Papua New Guinea, then you came back... ..and made MTV movies. So, after making the movie, which you had a starring role... ..went and made some of the first MTV videos. And, um, then I did one for a band which then became very famous... ..when No Names No Drill. And after making the movie, I went to an editing, um... I went to the hotel room, and so what I did was I shot the, I provided the film, I then processed the film in a processing laboratory that i built myself after pushing it to 1600 ASA instead of 160, and to do that without changing the colour, I then went into the Kodak books and then realised that you had to add sulfuric acid to the second colour developer to stop it turning green. I then bloody edited the whole thing, put a soundtrack on it, went to the hotel room and there they were lying around drinking champagne and smoking Buddha sticks, didn't offer me any, and then they said, "Uh, here's 40 bucks, bugger off. And at that stage I figured there's no money in this thing called music videos, so then I left and became a scientific officer in a hospital and here I am, the shrivelled wreck you see before you today. (laughs) This book here, Surfing Safari... Ah, yeah, one of the first two books in the world to have holograms, I think. And you download the modestly named Dr Karl app, alright? So I'm saying it once so I don't have to say it to everybody else. Download the modestly... Uh, do you have a, a Stephen app? <laughs> oh, humble brag. <laughs> oh. Um. Look, by the way, all you have to do is just add a couple of thousand bucks and you can get it. Okay. Okay? So you get your own app and then you say download the Dr Carl app and then you put on your camera and you aim at the book and up pops the little pictures of me. And so there's a story about fish dead called dead fish swimming and then you press one of the buttons under my feet as I float there in space and then blow me down takes you to a home page where if you've got internet access you can see a video of a fish that's been dead for a couple of days and they're still swimming. And whales would keep on swimming after they were dead as well for a day or so into an oncoming sea. And, I mean... That's that's one of the chapters. There's about. I don't
0: Only I, one. I, I mean, there's, a, there's about 20 chapters in this book, each one different. I think you start with the importance of how to make a decent espresso coffee, which, oh. is, which, is, which, is, which is. Thank is... God
1: you made me real coffee. Yeah. But, but I'm prepared to accept instant if
0: I have okay. to. But but then you go on to the traveling anus, and then we go the, from the, there. The, the, yeah, there is an two, animal. Two, that... two, separate chapters yeah. on, two separate chapters on black holes, and another on, on relativity. The, the range is what really impresses me when you when you look at this I, I you must read incredibly widely
1: well um, it all starts off because the back then the uh, Australian government thought that education was a worthwhile investment in the future <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't make that mistake anymore <laughs> now <Nah. laughs> what's an investment in the future is it investing in a coal mine that no bank in the world will bankroll but anyway so as a result of that I had 16 years of university education for free and worked in the fields of physics and mathematics and as a biomedical engineer when I designed and built a machine for Fred Hollows to pick up electrical signals off the human retina to uh, pick up certain types of eye disease so there's about how many 150 people here. 250. 250. So three or four of you are carrying the gene for retinitis pigmentosa, and my machine could uh, pick that up. And then I spent it. Uh, then I became a doctor in the kids' hospital, and that was another 10 years of my life. And also, I have several years of non-degree study in computer science, astrophysics, philosophy, and electrical engineering, just to round me off. Thank you, taxpayers of Australia. So that's the first <laughs> stage of having a, a broad knowledge, right? So you get a good background. The second part is reading my way through $10,000 worth of scientific literature every year, which is a pile about a metre thick every month. But the third part... I'm just going to... Do you ever watch Netflix? (laughs) Ah, Oh, did did you see
0: The uh, Social Dilemma? No, I haven't watched The Social Dilemma, but that's a documentary.
1: Do you watch anything stupid? (laughs) Unfortunately, I do. Uh, I I try to watch the comedy shows. They're they're normally pretty good. I watched For All Mankind. Did you see that one on Apple TV? That one, Doctor Martin is when my brain dead. Normally by Thursday, I can't brain no more. I'm using the word brain as a verb, And yeah. you usage which I hope to bring into the English language. I can't brain no more, so I'll just sit there. I, I have a heart rate and a pulse, and I kind of grunt, and that's kind of about it. That's all that's left in the tank. Yeah, because Thursday's because you've read you've read a meter of I oh, know no, I've, scientific been, a, I've been emoting. So I do every Wednesday. I do radio all morning with radio shows around Australia, and I'm picking up a few in South Africa and Ireland and then I do schools. By the way, uh, you go to my homepage, uh, drcarl.com. Do you have stephen.com? <laughs> I do, actually. Stephen? I, uh, there is
0: stephenlang.com. That's all right. Yes. Doc, doc, .com or doc, No, It's .me, actually. It's dot .me.
1: It's dot .me. <laughs> OK, you win that one. OK, we won all now. <laughs> OK, so then you go to... Dr.com K- was taken. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> I have to pay a thousand bucks to get it off somebody? <laughs> okay, so you go to drcarl.com and you scroll down and it says, hey, do you want a free science Q&A with your class uh, at school? So I do two of those or three of those every Wednesday afternoon somewhere in Australia. Then Thursday's radio, just talking to an audience. But I'm just on the end of a microphone. I don't have the live audience so I can suck their energy vampire life. <laughs> I'm just sort of talking to a microphone. And by the end of the day, I'm all wrung out. So, <laughs> But the third part of having great knowledge... <laughs> glad, you're, glad you're on track here. Uh, so th- did you see the nested layers I went down? So no. the first part is the getting the knowledge edu- formally. The second part is keeping up to date. The third part is turning it in- into a story. And I st- write four stories every week. And if you do that every week for 30 years, after a while you begin to... After three decades, you begin to know something and suddenly you're an overnight success. So... <laughs> I'll tell you the importance of the story because it's part of our evolutionary history. Suppose item scenario one, I give you a thousand words in alphabetical order, I say, Stephen, give them back to me, forget it. I tell you the same words but in a story. Here comes the story. A few weeks ago there was a bang on the front door at two o'clock in the morning and I looked outside the window and there's this huge bloody stretch limo. And I go downstairs and who should be there but Kim Kardashian saying, hi, Dr. Carl, look, um, grab your passport for you and your wife, Dr. Mary. I'm going to take you on a special surprise trip. I said... Sounds good to me. So we go down in the car with our passports. Go in, have you ever been in a G5 private jet? No. The, no, me neither. But anyway, in a story I have been. So we then fly directly to Los Angeles um, and then across to, New, to the White House where we meet many of the world leaders including Donald Trump and Joe Biden and we discover that all of the world leaders are actually shape-changing reptiles from the planet Zog. <laughs> and we have a nude mud mar- bath with them. Okay, stop. At that stage, by the way, I got this from Nexus, which is just down the road from you. (laughs) Didn't say a thing. Didn't say a thing. So you can tell me that story back. And accidentally along the way, you'll tell me those words, but not in alphabetical order. So the brain, the human brain is wired up to communicate with our fellow human to make us a stronger fighting animal because we haven't got much going for us our claws are pretty weak, our teeth are weak, our skin, not as good as a cow, but put us together and have a, a bond and then we can say, OK, you chase the dinosaurs that way, I'll chase them this way, they'll fall over the cliff and we'll have dinosaurs for dinner. 65 million years before we actually got that together. Well,
0: but
2: we were.
1: there is like, something on my Twitter feed where somebody said, hey, atheist, comma, referring to me, how do you explain not actually an atheist. Uh, that's different. Uh, how do you explain uh, dinosaurs being wiped out by the big rock when humans weren't? And the answer is social distancing of 65 million years. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Although we both know the world is only 5,000 years old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, right. Was, by the way, that's a secret. Don't tell anybody else. Just keep it to the upper echelons of parliament. Ooh!
0: I'm, I'm, I want to get on. I'm, I want to move on to just a little bit onto this n- new book that you've got. This this fabulous little book of
1: oh, the, cl- the little one that the was little, really hard one. because I shrank it down from tw- two hundred thousand down to fifteen, and it's like that letter from Oscar Wilde in Reading Jail. Dear Mr. Lang, please accept my apologies for writing such a long letter, comma because I didn't have time to write a short one. It just about killed me to write a short one, but I'm glad I did it no i 'm very glad
0: you did because i'm I, I was talking up this book at the last event we had because it seems to me like and here's the interesting thing is that all of your books kind of present themselves as kind of fun facts of science as they were, but you 're really quite hard nosed about what you what you 've got in them you don't you don 't talk down to your audience at all you 're actually if you want to talk if you 're talking about black holes you talk about relativity and you assume that the audience is going to go with you. That I take them along for the ride.
1: The average audience member that I write for is aged 10 years old. And in other words, a sense of curiosity, average intelligence, but zero knowledge. And I'll take them the rest of the way. Yeah. Well... Okay, I'll
0: maybe be. 11. <laughs> <laughs> that's why That's why I can understand what you're writing about, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in, this, in this book here, I just was... Why, why did you write this book? Um,
1: because we're getting close to something irreversible. We haven't got there yet, but we're getting close. And the thing that I think... So I've been to Antarctica five times... ...and what all of the uh, glaciologists are worried about is the Thwaites Glacier. Now it's not particularly big. It's about the size of the United Kingdom. Um, but it's a plug... ...for this giant valley, thousands of kilometres long. And if it pops, you could end up with the ice that's on land coming down towards the sea. A long time ago it used to do two metres a year. Now it's doing two kilometres a year. And a submarine went underneath the Thwaites Glacier recently. Mind you, how do you explore an area the size of England with one lousy submarine? But they suddenly found that instead of being this thick... It's only that thick. And there's warm currents melting the bottom and it's not grounded on the ocean floor. And if it pops, it could raise the ocean level by a metre or so, give or take, in a decade or so. Now that's not irreversible, right? Give it ten, say a few thousand years, we could bring things back. Is it irreversible in the lifetime of children who are being born today? That's irreversible. Mm. But the world won't stop. Although I have no idea why they built that teaching hospital on the Sunshine Coast, just barely a metre above sea level. (laughs) But, moving right along, (laughs) so I did my first... I read about global warming back in 1976. 75 when I was working as a scientific officer in the hospital system and in between I was reading the new scientist and to my surprise I had discovered that in 1973 the world's largest insurance company Munich Re is a reinsurance company you, you and I deal with insurance companies. Yeah. The reinsurance companies are the big guys who insure ins- each other. And so it's the biggest insurance company in the world. And they basically said in 1973, we're seeing this thing called the greenhouse effect causing um, disasters and uh, events that are costing us money. Nothing personal, as they say in the mafia. It's just business. We'll just charge the public more. We've got to deal with it. And that was in 1973. And remember, before the medical people realised that smoking was killing people, the insurance company saw it first. Nothing personal, it's just business. And so I wrote my first story about it in 1981. And some of the people in the audience weren't born then. And so I've been writing about it. In 1985 what happened was that the scientists came um, to the various governments of the world and said there's a thing called the ozone layer, CFCs are a chemical, they're damaging the ozone layer, uh, you've got to do something about it. In 1985 they said that. By 1987, the governments of the world had got together, formed the Montreal Protocol and had banned them. In 1990, the scientists of the world said there's a thing called the greenhouse effect. We think it's caught we are very confident it's being caused by carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Ban them and instead uh, we didn't do it. The Thanks. fossil fuel companies then spent billions of dollars – to keep them g- going. And I was going to come to that because one of the, um, the book
0: is as usual, divided into chapters and the, the first part of the book is is some chapters on the history of the the sides of climate change and how it's come to being and there's a, a very interesting section there about ExxonMobil and about the fact that back in 1976 they were actually hiring some of the leading experts on climate science... They were the funding it, yes. they were. They were the fossil fuel companies were funding the best science on climate science. And But 20 years later, or not even 20, 18 years later or something like that, they did this complete flip. Mm. And I just... Um, I'm curious to know... I mean, we, we can just say cynically because they wanted money, but it seems to me that there's something even more radical going on there, and that decision. No- knowing what they did to try and then fund anti-science. Do you, do you know...
1: Do you have an opinion why they did that? Um... I try to ignore opinions and stick to the facts. I have two guesses. Um... That they went down... They, they, they had two options. I have, I have a guess about their two options in 1990. In 1990, the science was in the global warming then later called climate change, was being caused by greenhouse gases. They had two options. Option one realised that while they were selling fossil fuels, they were actually selling energy in many different forms, hard fossil fuels, liquid fossil fuels, gaseous fossil fuels. And option one was to remain an energy company, and they had a lot of clout, and they could transition into this ...unfamiliar territory and most of them would probably come out on top... ...but they might be falling over a bit. So it was a little bit risky. Option number two, lie. And so they set off a massive disinformation fund... ...up to a billion dollars a year of disinformation. And um, if you spend up to a billion dollars a year telling lies... ...over and over and over again... Um, you'll probably end up convincing people. And in some countries of the world, the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister have actually walked into their Supreme Governing uh, House with a lump of their, pe- their, their, their pet rock and, and fondled it. Um, and, but I, ha- I have got a solution, though. But we'll leave that to later. Yeah, leave, yeah okay. leave,
0: leave it a bit like. So, so
1: they did fund it, and you get a you get a lot of traction when you just keep on telling the same lies over and over and over again. <coughs> Sky TV, <laughs> Sky TV. Okay. So, Murdoch Press. Uh, <laughs> the
0: the next kind of section that you go into, and this is the uh, this is why I think this book is so fascinating, is because I've I've long been a believer that global warming was happening, but it's it, there's been this, t- for, for some time, there's been this kind of di- division in society where there are people like myself who are not scientists, who believe the scientists, and then there are people who um, are not scientists who don't believe the scientists because they've seen a video on YouTube or something like that. But what's interesting is just a very few pages in that book, you actually... Describe the science. You say why it's happening in a very, very clear and lucid way, uh, which I think is just quite remarkable. I mean, do you wa- could you even encapsulate that for a minute?
1: I can do it in about uh, two minutes. So, it is not the actual burning of the fossil fuels which is generating most of the heat of global warming. Rather, it's the greenhouse gases which act like a one-way valve. The sun is throwing heat at the Earth about half a kilowatt per square metre when the sun is directly overhead and that heat is coming in at 5,700 degrees, it's coming in at long, at short wavelengths and because of the physics, it just goes straight past the carbon dioxide. It heats up the ground to about 15 degrees centigrade, which then radiates back into space and at that lower temperature, or if you want to get fancy, the longer wavelength, it interacts with the carbon dioxide and is trapped. Carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases act like a one-way valve. They trap the heat of the sun. How much heat do they trap? Well, we've measured this both on the ground and from satellites, which we've had in orbit for decades. And at the moment, as of today, the amount of heat, extra heat trapped by the sun in the 24-hour day that we're in is roughly 400,000 Hiroshima bombs worth of heat. That's how much heat is being trapped each day. You can get away with that for a day, or a week, or a month, or a year, or a decade. You do it for several decades and you end up with things like on the 4th of January last year, Sydney was the hottest place on the planet, Sydney, 49.8 degrees, that one-fifth of all the forests in Australia burnt last year, that this year in one day the amount of water flowing over the spillway at Warragamba Dam was equal to a year's supply for five million people. And just to look at the big picture, we have both... For uh, Number one, I'm very confident that we have tipped the Earth off its axis. The scientists are very confident on that. And we're still... They're, they're just a little bit away from releasing the second one, which is we've made the Earth spin faster. You know how the Earth has got this 24-hour day thing? Okay, it's 23 hours and 56 minutes, but you've got to come around four degrees in the orbit so that the sun is directly above. Let's pretend it's 24 hours, okay? For the rest of us, we think it's 24 hours. So the Earth takes 24 hours to spin, but we've been measuring it with clocks really accurately. And around 1891, we realised that the day speeds up and slows down. Imagine you put a big sail up on the Earth, a big sail. Four kilometres high, running from the equator to the South Pole, it's called the Andes. It's got 14 peaks, each over four kilometres high. And depending on whether you've got a high pressure system on this side and low pressure on the other, or vice versa, the Earth will spin faster or slower by a bit of a mili- by a fraction of a millisecond. And we can measure that really easily. And we've been watching the Earth speed up and slow down. And 32 of the shortest days ever in history were recorded last year. Shortest. Okay, now think about an ice skater. They're on one leg, they're spinning, and they've got their arms out, and they bring their mass close to their centre of spin, and they speed up. And we've got all these glaciers and ice above sea level, and we melt them, and we bring them closer to the centre of spin of the earth, and the earth speeds up. Don't you think it's amazing that we humans have measured besides all this other stuff of destroying one-fifth of all the uh, forests in Australia, we have measured to tip the earth off its axis and speed up the earth? I mean, the earth's 12,700 kilometres across, and we insignificant humans have affected an entire planet. That's astonishing. And, of course, the glaciers and all the other stuff. Okay. So what do we do about it? Oh, easy. Okay, here's the solution. Um, It's illegal. Sorry? It's illegal. What's illegal? The solution. Okay. The, 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 this is the fast and cheap solution. It relies on the fact that Australian politicians are really cheap. I think one of them got busted for <laughs> 5, 000, a $5,000 bribe. Remember that guy? No names, no drill. He got busted out of Parliament for accepting a 5000 We bribed the politicians. It's illegal. But it'd be so quick. They're so cheap. <sighs> But we have to follow the law. No violence, no bribery. We've got to follow the law. So we're stuck with uh, option two, replace the politicians. Peacefully. Just vote them out. The system is set up against it. In one case, if a certain political party gets 10% of the vote, it gets 16 seats in parliament. Another political party gets 10% of the vote, it gets one seat in parliament. That's all right, we just have to work... Ten times harder. But that's... I mean, that's... That's the only solution. Everything else is just crap. You You know, the carbon footprint was invented by the fossil fuel companies, BP in 2004, as a way of victim blaming. The reason that we have global warming is because of you running these lights up there. It's your fault. It's like saying the reason that we have a hole in the ozone is because you, Stephen, you open the fridge door several times a day. Really, the solution is we come up with a different system where we've got a different chemical and in the same way we just shift over to going non-carbon generating. Unfortunately, we've got a few dozen companies who are making an absolute mozza out of it and in my book I refer to the, I'm sure you read this, the 2019 International Monetary Fund report which points out that of all of the revenue generated by all of the governments on earth... In any calendar year, it's been pretty constant from 2013 to 2019, 8% is given to the fossil fuel companies as a present. That's more than the military budget for the whole world. Each of you in the audience, and I think, Drew, you brought your younger kids here. Each of your kids, uh, they're about 10 years old, uh, each of your kids paid $2,700 to the fossil fuel companies last year. Everybody, every one of us via the federal government and you hear them talking about we've got to tax the electric cars because of the fuel excise which is used to build roads. The money from the fuel excise has not gone to building roads for half a century, since 1959. On the other hand, electric vehicles will tow a caravan. So uh, the only way around it is to just uh, the individual things we can do is nothing. So, the carbon footprint let me talk about carbon footprint. If you are the average citizen of the world, five tonnes of carbon dioxide in your society per year. If you live in India, it's 2.2 tonnes. America, 20 tonnes. Australia, 25 tonnes. Let's go back to America. If you go to America, there's 20 tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. Go absolutely off the grid, become a homeless person, own nothing. You don't buy any clothes. You get your food out of a soup kitchen or you find hamburger rubbish on the street. You live under cardboard. Your carbon footprint is eight tonnes per year, four times that of a person in India because of the society you live in. The carbon footprint is embedded into the society and we have to change the society. Now, Stephen and I, have um, we've gone to the streets. I think you and I went to the rally on Vietnam Yes. Yep. So let me just see. I've, I have gone to the streets. I've done uh a of yelled in the streets for giving indigenous people the right to be counted and to vote against nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, ...for pulling us out of Vietnam. I've gone to the sports stadiums and got my fair share of of abuse... uh, ...for uh, arguing against the poor old Springboks. But we ended up getting Nelson Mandela out of jail... ...and I've gone in the streets for climate change. Five times I've gone and protested in the streets... ...and so far, well four of them... ...I've been proven to be on the right side of history. Uh, Climate change, I'm confident we're on the right side of history. We have to do something.
0: In in, in the book, you're you're a little bit more positive about this. We are positive. We
1: can fix it. There's nothing, there's no science or technology that we need to invent. There's nothing needed to be invented. We can do it tomorrow. Because, I mean, you talk about the war effort, for example... Um,
0: in America and the the building of the the bombers as as an example, which I thought was an
1: extraordinary statistic that you give there. Okay, America, 1942, they've built 3,000 planes in the previous half century. 1941. 7th of December they get bombed, Pearl Harbour. In the next three years they shift from building 3,000 planes in half a century to 300,000 in three years. We can do the same thing. We just have to go onto a war footing. There are so many ways to fix up global warming, it's just ridiculous. The only thing stopping us is the billion dollars a year of disinformation put out by the big fossil fuel companies. In the book I go through each of the methods. Go to drawdown.org and it talks about how we can firstly stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for everything and then start pulling it back and go to bze.org.au, an Australian site. Same deal again and then the Americans started building these bombers. To do that they, they realised they had to have built lots of planes. Now back then they had car factories in 1941 and a car was made of 15,000 parts. Suddenly the car factories, they built a, uh, they'd say, OK, we're going to build a new factory. When, when I say they build a new factory, just one building alone that they built was the biggest single storey building in the entire known universe a kilometre long, 0.3 of a kilometre wide. And they had to start pumping out these aeroplanes. A car, 15,000 parts. These planes, 500,000 parts, not 15,000 parts, and high-precision materials and built to very fine tolerances. None of this close enough is good enough. And they were pumping these aeroplanes out, huge planes, 30 metres by 30 metres, weighing 30 tonnes, carrying a huge load all the way to Perth and back. They, could, they were pumping these out at the rate of what not one a month, not one a week, not one an hour. In the book I talk about there's a whole bunch of methods of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere ranging from fully biological in all of its manifestations into brutally military industrial and with 40 million machines we could pull a year's worth of human-generated carbon dioxide out of the air. We would put it back in the ground where we should never have taken it from in the first place and 40 million is a huge number. It's half the number of cars we make every year. And they're much simpler than cars. We could build it. We just have to go onto a war footing. The only thing stopping us are the politicians today who have been, how would you put it, influenced by half a billion dollars worth of funding and the fact that they're incredibly cheap. We just need new and different politicians. If you do not run for – who in this room has run for politics? Okay. Where everybody else, it's your fault. All it is needed for evil to triumph is that you sit back and do nothing. Either do it or don't complain. Yeah. And support <laughs> politicians. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: that this is, this is an interesting question uh, because I was asking some friends of mine, you know, I've, I'm going to be talking to Dr Carl next week, is there something you'd like to ask him? And, and one of my friends said, well... One of the things about the modern age is that science has constantly pushed the boundaries of what technology can do, but scientists have a tendency to pretend that they are kind of objective animals, and they just kind of produce this stuff, and then the politicians take it and use it for whatever it is, purposes that they want, and they feed it to us who like the baubles that they create. The question that he asked me was, to, to ask you was simply, was shouldn't... ...scientists themselves be taking more responsibility for what it is that they've created... ...and actually run for politics themselves or to, or to, to, to demand more from
1: the people in power... ...who are using the machines that they've made or created? Complicated question. Uh, part one, old Polish saying, if you've got a dog, don't bark. In other words, stick to your specialty or stick to people who are specialised in what they're good at. Scientists, in general, are really good at seeing both sides of the argument unfortunately, and tend, but are not always, uh, objective about their particular field, although there are bad scientists as there are bad anything in any field. The scientists who created the bad stuff, mate, that's James Watt back in the 1700s, right? (laughs) That's a long time ago and all we've done is come up with more efficient ways to burn fuel so the, the car of today has half the fuel burn of a car of 20 years ago. Are the scientists in some way responsible? They're yeah. the ones who've got all the technology and need to reverse it. It's the politicians who are stopping us. But yeah. there, are, there is, on the other hand, this terrible situation that we've got all these baubles in our society. So while the uh, toys are cheaper, the important stuff, housing, education, healthcare. They've gone way expensive. Um, and I've written about this in one of my earlier books called The 1% and The 10%. is about the flow of money from the poor to the wealthy. It's in a science book. But I would recommend Thomas Piketty's Capitalism in the 21st Century, followed by Schindler's The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And basically the longer the period of peace that you have, the nicer it is for people. But... You get an increase in uh, separation between the poor and the wealthy, and during the pandemic, billionaires have been created at a faster rate than in any previous year ever in the history of the human race. So I'm going, I'm going, to, I'm going to give, give us
0: over to the audience now for questions because I think I've had your attention for long enough. Um, I was wondering, could we bring the lights up just a little bit so that we can see the audience? And uh, and what I'm going to do is, as I said, please, I'm going to ask you to speak into a microphone. My wife, Tony, at the back has got a roaming mic. So what, what I'll do is I'm going I'm to ask for, say, four or five people. to put, put your hands up who'd like to ask a question. I've got one here. I've got one at the back there. I've got another one here. Um, okay, so there's three questions to start. Four, I've got another one at the back there. Okay, so I've got four questions that I can see straight off. I think we've got somebody with a microphone right at the back there.
1: And with a bit of luck, if you aim it right, you can make the microphone runner get lots of exercise tonight. From here to there to over there and back again. (laughs) Okay, question one. Thank you, Dr. Carl. Um, It occurred to me that if the polar ice caps melt, there's a massive shift of mass in the earth. In other words, the earth slightly flattened by the weight of the poles. When it melts, it shifts. Therefore, the shape of the earth must change. Therefore, maybe you get lots of volcanic eruptions or whatever. Do you think that's likely? Uh, the Earth is slightly um, bulging at the equator by one part in 300. Saturn, by the way, bulges by one part in 10. The spin of the Earth throws the water upwards by eight kilometres, centrifugal force, but if that, if the Earth were suddenly to stop, spinning the water would then retreat uh, away to the north and to the south, in those directions. Yes, we are throwing more water and we will keep on tipping the Earth off its axis. We have been measuring this again since 1891 with Seth Chandler and we've been measuring that the north-south spin axis of the Earth has been gradually drifting towards the equator at five centimetres per year until 2005 when suddenly it chucked a lefty started going parallel to the equator and accelerated by a factor of three or four. And that was due, if you do the mathematics, to the water being re- redistributed from one place on the earth to another. You know, you've just got a perfectly spinning wheel, for example, and you put a little weight on it, it begins to wobble. So we will make the earth wobble even more. Causing earthquakes? Probably not. Uh, maybe. I'm not a volcanologist. Uh, you do find an increase in earthquakes related to the monsoon, but that's a whole different topic. So we'll just leave that to later. Um, There was somebody, just the gentleman right here in the front. Ah, you're working well. That's a good diagonal. i would go for the far corner next. Yep.
0: Thanks, Dr. Carl. It's been very interesting. Um, Mainly going back to the political and uh, climate change issue. Generationally, it seems that the younger generation seem to be the ones that are doing more, getting out there. Um, And the older generation seems to be the ones that... This is very generalistic, obviously, but... ...are the ones voting for the people who aren't doing the change. Are you very optimistic that the younger generation are the ones that are driving this change in politics... ...hopefully for the better, for everybody?
1: It's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, And (laughs) there's an old saying in politics, never waste a good disaster. And um, advertising can buy you lots of lies... And there's lots of ignorance about climate change, the hard science of it. The only reason I know about it is I've been I've been reading up on it since nineteen eighty one. It's a huge body of knowledge. Um, I am optimistic, irrationally optimistic. Yes. I can't help but being optimistic. If somebody dumped a ton of cow manure on my front lawn, I'd think my roses would grow really well. Yes. Okay. Um hi. Um, I'm 13, and I was just wondering.
2: So, what could I do at my age to try and help fight climate change?
1: Um, get knowledgeable and get power. Um, you don't have much power at the moment. You will have more power when you can vote. And I would recommend um, joining for a period of, say, six months each, each of the political parties, just for fun. <laughs> I too have worked, and I have worked in the belly of the beast. I work for BHP, Um, I've done things that have... I've I've worked for commercial television. There, I said it, right? (laughs) So work... So in the meantime, just volunteer to see what it's like on the inside while at the same time getting as much knowledge as you can and head down that political pathway. You might not have um, the mindset... To become a mathematician or a politician but support somebody who will uh, and and give them all the support they can. This will be decided by politics. There's no science needed. We've already got all the science and technology we need to stop and reverse global warming and bring the carbon dioxide levels back and the temperature and the climate back to what it was in the 20th century. What we need is different or better politicians. So you want to make the world a better place, go down that pathway. Oh, and and get to meet Greta Thunberg and uh, get any advice from her, you can as well.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for a fantastic evening, Dr. Carl. I'm way up. back here. Hi. I'm a teacher and I'm, uh, with full respect to the educator on stage, I'd love to know what changes you would like to see in the delivery of the basic curriculum in Australia in format and... Classroom structure.
1: Uh, we... Well, firstly, uh, I- is it correct that the teaching of the concept of the atom is not compulsory until year nine? Is that correct or is that incorrect? I, I would correct, certainly. Oh, yeah, microphone, I, I microphone? I,
0: I, it's certainly not one that is taught... It, it is not within the, the basic science curriculum, no. OK, so
1: first change is that I'd make the uh, knowledge of atoms Available in kindergarten. The kindergarten kids can understand it and it makes the world so much easier to understand. Like if some, when I do my question and answer sessions, happy to do one with your school, go to my homepage drcarl.com, make a booking, ring me directly, Stephen's got the number. Um, when the primary school kids say, How come when I go out in a cold morning and I breathe outwards, I can see these little misty things in the air? You can't explain that without atoms. So the first change, the small one, is bringing atoms. The second one is a bigger change. What we have in Australia is firstly a situation, I think I'm correct on this, that Australia has the largest percentage of kids in the entire world going to private schools and Australia, I think I'm correct on this, is the only country in the world where the federal government gives more money to private schools than it does to government schools. And so, what I would do is be brutally straightforward and just go for a very well-funded public education system. The reason for this is I went out once to a to, to two schools in the western suburbs of Sydney, and one of them. Uh, ...under a federal government grant, they'd been given $5,000... ...it was a government school, and out of that $5,000... ...they they could do some repairs to the school... ...but they had to also, out of that $5,000, hire an accountant... ...to make sure they hadn't wasted any of the money. They still had some broken windows because they'd run out of money. After giving talks at that school in the morning... ...I then went out to a school not far from it, a private school... ...which had not 17 cricket pitchers but 17 cricket fields and an underground rifle range. And they the, the headmaster told me proudly that just in the last week they'd been given a $3.5 million special grant to make a new driveway for the private school. Private school. And, and the federal government actually... You might actually go looking into the history of this. It's interesting. Um, They set up a scheme whereby they could judge private schools as being schools for disadvantaged kids. And the way they did this was really clever. You go and pick a bunch of kids and you say, Now, you come from burke Bororana, which is an incredibly poor area, and you look up burke Borona and the average pr- uh, income there is really low and the only person in town, I'll just make this up, is the Toyota dealer. Right? And they're wealthy because they're selling cars. That's the only wealthy person in town. And they send their kid to this school and therefore, because they come from an area that has a very low average income, that kid counts as a disadvantaged kid. Isn't that a clever trick that the federal government did? And so, therefore, some of the private schools bring in disadvantaged kids who are favorably wealthy kids. So I'd go for the Scandinavian model. Everybody gets the same education in a government school until year nine. The teachers have to jump through some hoops. Important saying here, if you give... I learnt this one in Texas. If you give a cat $100, you don't get a lion. You just get a cat with $100. And if you pay teachers $150,000, you don't automatically get better teachers. You just get wealthier teachers. So you make the teachers run through hoops. So the teachers have to have a master's degree in education. And separately, they have to have a master's degree in the field that they're teaching. And they start off at 150, 200,000, they just keep going up, and they can make a good income while staying as a teacher and not having to go to administration. Everybody gets the same education until year nine, and they split then into the academic and the non academic. And remember this I learned this from a plumber. Without plumbing, you have no civilization. If you don't have the tradies, you got nothing. In Australia, we had a situation where one of the political parties. I think it's called, another liberal party is what it's called, ALP, is that, that, I think that's what it stands for. <laughs> where they brought back company, they, they decreased company taxes, increased personal taxes, brought back university fees and killed the TAFE colleges. And so we've got that situation where we do not respect the trades in Australia. Whereas if you go to Scandinavia or Germany, you'll have people who are called master carpenters and master this. And so you've got your average chippy who's got a problem, and so they can either go to the TAFE College or there's somebody in their area who is a master in that area. ...and is respected. The tradies are respect- respected. We need to respect the people in our society if they're doing good work... ...and, and that includes the teachers. So pay the teachers twice as much and th- and have a fully privatised system. That's how I would change the education system.
2: I'm a science teacher. I'm retired. Um, oh. <laughs> well, be... I'm, I'm 75. I okay. taught till I was 71.
1: Because <laughs> you must know so much stuff that the students would love. I
2: had a ball teaching, but I taught mostly
1: in New South Wales,
2: Sydney High... ...and places like that. And I was just thinking about that year nine, that uh, atoms thing. When I went from Queensland to New South Wales, the syllabus was quite different. In New South Wales it was mandatory to do science in high school. Everybody had to do science from year seven. Now that didn't happen up here. I don't know what they're doing now. I was a bit cross because they changed the chemistry syllabus and took out what I thought were some very important ideas. Like equilibrium and gas oh, laws and stuff like that. Too much equilibrium is barely <laughs> enough. I mean, I'm just wondering myself, um, for a start, yeah, I agree there. Pay teachers more. I mean, when you see the AMP guy gets 70, bucks, 70 million bucks a year <laughs> and I get 70,000, I begin to wonder about the quality of life. However, what I've been trying to do as a greenie from way back, and as you say, running running around waving placards, um, I put a lot of solar panels on my roof and a tank in my backyard. That's why I moved to Mulaney. I'm sitting on a mountain. Rising seas can't get me here. ...and um, I'm now finding out but they're going to try and tax my solar panels. So, what do you think about that one?
1: Uh, I think it's perfectly fair that the federal government... ...should charge you for giving energy to the rest of our society. Providing that that happens for everybody and that when I go to a petrol station, because I still have to go to a petrol station because the federal government is successfully blocking electric cars, that they should pay me for filling up my car with petrol.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hi. Um, There's recently been a bit of hype about a seaweed that's native to Australian waters that reduces methane emissions in ruminant animals by over 80 per cent. Have you heard of this?
1: Funny you should mention it, but it's in my fabulous book called... (laughs) ..Dr. Carl's Little Book of Climate Change. So you can reduce the methane emissions. And by the way, molecule for molecule, methane is worse at trapping heat from the sun about 70 or 80 times than carbon dioxide. And we can reduce the methane emissions by 80, 90 per cent by... by making 1 per cent of the feed of cattle this seaweed. There's so much we can do. There is nothing stopping us except the politicians. They're not helping us getting to the future. They're stopping us. Um, Stephen, question for you without notice. When the head of Exxon resigned um, or le- left, um, how much was his payout package? Oh, look, we'll just make a guess. $47 million. <laughs> $400 million. <laughs> Oh, shit, OK. You're not greedy
0: enough.
2: <laughs> Hi, I'm a cattle farmer. And I would love to feed our cattle um, seaweed. My question is: You're a very dangerous man to BP and things like that. How are they trying to get back at you? Have they sued you about all of the claims in your wonderful book, which I've just read? And are you are you having issues with people trying to shut you down and what you're saying?
1: Um, When I was running for politics, oh, this is interesting for our... Who's the person at the back who asked, 13-year-old person, about danger? Yeah, give us a wave there. Yeah, okay. When I was running for politics in 2007, I'm sure none of you voted for me, for the Federal Senate. To my surprise, the Murdoch press came out with lies about me. They didn't say you'd taken drugs, did they, Dr. Cole? What's was a statute of limitations. <laughs> um, and so they, they made up interviews with me. Uh, and I had an interview with one of them uh, where they said, ''Now, you've got a Monaro.'' And I said, ''No, my wife's got a Monaro. Um, I've got a Prius.'' ''So, you've got a Monaro and your wife's got the Prius.'' And I said, ''No, the other way around." He said, ''No, girls don't drive... Okay. My wife is a lead she, she, she loves to drive and so the Monaro was a beautiful thing and we live near an expressway so we only driving around t- town was a dog you know 25 liters per 100 Ks but we have we drove it only to the relatives on the weekend at Campbelltown and Newcastle so we're getting about eight or ten liters per 100 Ks which is just terrific um, and so the headline on page three of the Telegraph the whole headline dr. Carl. Eco-hypocrite. And then it went on about how I had a Monaro, even though I said I didn't, it was my wife's car. And then I had a big interview about me and then it had a phone number to ring if you thought I was an eco-hypocrite or not. But here's the interesting point I just suddenly realised from your question. Only when I was getting to the stage where I could threaten them by becoming potentially a politician did they swap me down like a fly. And out of the 782,000 votes I needed to get into the Federal Senate with votes under the line. And if you do not know what under the line means, you deserve everything that happens to you. But out of the 782,000 votes I needed, I got 44,000 votes, which is apparently a record, which meant that 44,000 people went one, two, all the way up to 200. And if they made a mistake and said 137 twice, they had to do the whole thing again. So they worried about me and they, just, they, they applied a, a tiny part of their massive armamentarium against me when I was th- threatening to get into where I could do some harm in politics. But when it comes to writing a book, they don't care. I've got nothing. I'm just insignificant. But if I can talk somebody here into going to Parliament and having one seat in Parliament in the Senate, well, I mean, there's people like Malcolm Roberts and so forth. So if you could <laughs> counteract Mr Roberts... I think I've done my work.
0: Thank you, Dr. Carl. Thank Thank you you
1: so much.